Well, we've been in the book of Revelation. We have been traveling through that book at rather high speed, if you please. And today we find ourselves in the 20th chapter. We've come to that place, dear ones, where time ends and eternity begins. We have seen back in chapter 1 through 3, uh, John the Apostle, who was used by the Holy Spirit to write this book, uh, was on the Isle of Patmos, and he talks about, or he's told to write about, seven churches. And those seven churches describe conditions of the church, the body of Christ, the redeemed, from that first century right up to our present day today until the church is taken out of here, what we call the rapture, that is a snatching away of all the believers. And I believe that's the next prophetic event that will happen where he comes back in the air in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and every believer in the whole world is instantly caught up and they're taken up back into heaven, after which begins the seven-year tribulation period. Now, that takes us into chapter 4, and John is caught up into heaven, and there he sees the throne room of God. It's not a throne of grace and mercy, but rather it is his throne of wrath and judgment. And there in chapters 4 and 5, he sees the Lamb... And the Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ who was slain, speaking of His first coming. John the Baptist saw Him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John sees the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, approach the one on the throne. And He takes the scroll out of His hand. And the scroll has seven seals sealed, wrapped around it. And that scroll with those seven seals is the title deed to the earth. He is about to claim back that which Adam lost back in the Garden of Eden. When Satan usurped the authority and the dominion over the earth. Remember he saw Jesus there when Jesus was being tempted for those 40 days and 40 nights. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, they're mine. I give them to whoever I wish. If you will bow down and worship me, Satan says to Jesus, I'll give you all these kingdoms. What was he saying? You don't need to go to the cross and get them that way. You don't need to become sin for mankind and bear the wrath of God on your life. No, just bow down to me. I'll give them all to you. And of course, Satan, or I'm sorry, Jesus used scripture to rebuke him because only God is to be worshipped. But that's a title deed to the earth. And then in chapter 6 through 18, we saw as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, broke each one of those seals. And you might recall the seventh seal contained seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment contained seven bowl judgments. He began to break the seals and judgment began to fall upon the earth and all the earth dwellers at that time. And we call that the seven year tribulation period. In fact, really, its focus is on the last three and one-half years called the Great Tribulation, called the time of Jacob's trouble because it will be a terrible time when Satan has been cast out of heaven at the midpoint of that seven years, and he has great wrath knowing he has but a short time, and he goes out to destroy Israel and the Jewish people and any who would turn to Jesus Christ, any who would not worship the Antichrist and his image. And so it's a horrible, horrible time on the face of the earth during those seven years, especially the last three and one half years. And then we saw, we got to chapter 19, and chapter 19, uh, actually it's a connection between 16 and 19, chapter 16 and 19, we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ came back because all the armies of the world had been amassed and gathered in and around Jerusalem, and the great battle of Armageddon was going to be fought. Now prior to the Lord's coming back, we saw in chapter 19, there was the marriage of the Lamb. And I believe that's you and me, the redeemed here, the church. We are the church now, the called out ones. But as we're snatched out and taken up into heaven, before he comes back, the marriage takes place. And then he and his bride, and obviously an angelic host of angels as well, come back 
here to the earth. And it's hardly a battle fought. All the armies amassed together. They're there to destroy Jesus Christ as He comes back to the earth to take control of it. One last attempt, if you please, of Antichrist and the false prophet. And Jesus, it's hardly a battle. It's, he but speaks and it's over as He slaughters all those nations. You recall that prior to doing that, though, he had probably his angelic uh, messengers take the Antichrist and the false prophet, capture them, if you please, bring them before him. I think judgment was passed right there before them, and he cast them alive into the lake of fire and brimstone, where they're tormented there day and night forever and ever. Then he slaughters all those nations. And then, in chapter 20, we saw that he... Before he sets up his kingdom, he has a great strong angel capture, if you please, Satan himself. It says he's seen with a great chain. And he takes Satan and he casts him into the bottomless pit. And he's chained there. And he seals it. And then the Lord begins his thousand year reign here upon the earth. You really can't miss it. It's called the millennium. That's a word for thousand. And the word thousand or millennium is used six times in Revelation 20. It's a literal event. He fulfills his promise to Israel. And God fulfills his promise to his son that he will reign supreme over the earth. He'll rule it with a rod of iron. And we sang last week, joy to the world, the Lord is come. That's a millennial song. We sing it for Christmas, but really it's talking about the second coming of the Lord back to the earth to reign supreme over it. And so we saw after the thousand years, there was one last job that God planned for Satan to do. And so he's released out of that pit. And it's interesting because you had people that came alive through the tribulation period, those seven years. And I believe they're all redeemed people, but they don't have glorified bodies. They come alive into the millennium, and we saw some of the wonderful things that will happen during that thousand year, where the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, where the animal kingdom is completely changed. There's no more violence anymore. Even a little child can lay by or, or play by the uh, the uh, den of the cobra, for example, and not no harm will happen. I mean, there's a major change in the animal kingdom as well as topographical changes all over the earth and we saw that because of that massive massive greatest earthquake of all that shakes all the mountains down all the valleys and uh, all the islands flee away and so forth i mean it's a completely topographical change during this thousand year reign of christ here upon the earth so the lord fulfills his promise to israel he fulfills god fulfills his promise to his son that he would reign and uh, then Satan now is released. And here are these people that came into this thousand-year reign with physical bodies. And it says it would be thought accursed. Accursed if somebody didn't live out beyond a hundred years. I mean, that was like youth he talks about in Isaiah. And so back to prior to the worldwide flood, evidently people will live long, long, long years at that time. And multitudes and seas of people, if you please, will be born. And the amazing thing, you have a perfect environment. You have what is taught in the schools and the universities during that time, the, the, the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, righteousness, truth, and so forth. In fact, any kind of out-and-out rebellion is instantly cut off by Him. It says He'll rule with a rod of iron. Or shepherd is literally the word there, with a rod of iron. So it's a perfect environment. All these people, there, they could see King Jesus and see the redeemed all around with the joy of the Lord. And yet... One last act by Satan, and he's set free, and he gathers these people up, these children that were born like the, uh, like the sands of the seashore. It is, it's impossible to even comprehend this. He gathers them all up, and they say what? We will not have this Jesus to reign over us. And what does God show? That no matter what the environment, no matter how wonderful, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? By the way, that's what's going to condemn the masses of people in hell. Their deceitful heart 
And of course, during this millennium, even Satan is not around or his followers to uh, cause a deception because he's in that bottomless pit. But now he's set free and it just shows it wasn't Satan. It wasn't the environment. It is the heart of man. And so they band together like the sand of the seashore, and they move up to the, to the Jerusalem, the elevated city where the great king is reigning, and immediately fire comes down out of heaven and just consumes them, and that's the end of it. And dear ones, that also is the end of time and the beginning of eternity. And that brings us to our text this morning in the 20th chapter, and uh, that is verses 11 through 15. This is the hardest passage in all the Bible. It's not so difficult to understand what he is saying or teaching. It is incomprehensible to get a hold of this event. But we're going to look at it. And ask God to bless us. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 of Revelation 20. The most difficult, the hardest passage in all your Bible. The end of time, the beginning of eternity. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We begin, you know, I think about Jesus' words. Let me even start before that. Today, most people do not believe in literal hell. I think they believe in a heaven or an afterlife that's good, but they don't believe in a literal hell. Today, most people do not believe they're going to end up in hell Or the lake of fire. Today, most people do not believe there is only one way to escape hell and gain heaven. If you ask them, they think, yeah, I'm going to end up in heaven or a better life. Or some would even go so far to say, there is no afterlife. You just die and that's the end of it. How sad. I think of what Jesus said. He tells a different story. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are they who enter through it. For the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life. And listen to these words. There are Few, there are few who find it. If you have found it, you need to praise God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and body. And say what I do, why me? Why me, Lord? What grace? As I said, the vast majority of people are going to find themselves at this great white throne judgment we just read here in chapter 20, 11 through 15. They're going to be thrown into this lake of fire. As I said, this is without doubt the hardest and most troubling portion of Scripture in all the Bible. Not that it's hard to understand it. Boy, the words are very clear. But to comprehend it, it's incomprehensible. 
It is so terrible beyond any words we could utter or feelings that we could experience to know that this final act of God upon every unsaved person is indeed going to be carried out. So terrible is this scene that Jesus sternly warned when He was here upon earth. He said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's God's Son who came to provide salvation, warning every person of this dreadful day we're about to enter into read about. So we begin in your outline, the court scene. The court scene in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The court scene. We start with the great white throne. I suppose much could be said about this. Just a few comments here. The book of Revelation is the book of thrones, by the way. Over 40 times you'll run across the word throne or thrones in the book of Revelation. Without question, the this great white throne we are introduced to here in Revelation 20, verse 11, instills great fear and dread in the hearts of those who are brought before it. No question about that. Back in chapter 4, we saw a throne... A great throne up in heaven. John was taken up into heaven. And that we saw one sitting on that throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Now listen to this though. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. We learned that it was God sitting upon his throne. But it was not a throne of grace and mercy. That was a throne of wrath and judgment. And yet, it spoke of having a rainbow around it. Why? Because even as the Lord broke those seals and the judgments fell upon the earth during those seven years, still there was grace and mercy being meted out. Thousands upon thousands of people turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and put their faith in Him. And they got saved and they got they lost their lives, most of them. But there was an element of grace and mercy. But you come to this throne, there is no emerald rainbow. There is absolutely no grace and no mercy at that throne to offer those who are standing before it. Multitudes. Multitudes will be there. John describes this throne as being great. Perhaps not so much in size, although it may be that as in great majesty and sovereign authority and power. It is white because the one on it is absolute purity. Absolute holy, who said and declared, you are to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. It also most likely speaks of God's eternity. He is forever, from everlasting to everlasting. Number two, the one sitting on this throne. Who is he? The one sitting on this throne. Back in chapter 4, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, was distinguished from the one that was sitting on that throne. I believe Daniel also saw this same throne and recorded such in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. I kept looking until thrones were set up, Daniel writes, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Similar words to what we read in Revelation twenty eleven and following. Though it is God 
Though it is God, the first person of the Trinity, seated upon this throne, it is also, if I might add, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated upon this throne. Now, don't be surprised by that. Why? There are some mysteries we simply cannot understand with our finite minds. We realize that, I think. For example, over in John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He didn't mean one in plant. He meant God and I are one. We can't comprehend that. We call that the incomprehensible Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All one, but yet still three distinct persons. One God, three distinct persons. We can't comprehend it. We can only say things in accord to the revelation in Scripture here. And so we go on here. In John 14, verses 9 and 10, he said to Philip, He who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And now listen to John's words, or Jesus' words, whether in John 5, 22. For not even the Father, he said, judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. He's given all judgment to the Son. In Acts 10.42, when Peter went down to visit Cornelius and his household, he said, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So evidently, though it's God the first person of the Trinity, it's also God, the second person, the Lord Jesus Christ on that throne. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, we read, Therefore, Paul writes, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof by raising him up from the dead. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully equal with God, yet fully man, who will judge the world, the living and the dead. And I believe, therefore, he is the one seated on that throne. We might say this awesome judge is God in Christ, sitting on the throne. Number three, the absence of the earth and heaven. The absence of the earth and heaven. I said earlier that when we come to verse 11 of Revelation 20, we've ended time and we've begun eternity. That's the significance of those words. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This is a fulfillment of Peter, his words over in Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord, so evidently this includes this era, this time or period here, beginning of eternity, the great white throne judgment. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. No wonder he told us, do not love the world nor the things of the world because the things of the world and the world is passing away. In Revelation 21.1 we read, then I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Some see this to be a recreation, a restoration of the original heaven and earth. Dr. John F. Walvoord, he was formerly the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, said, if you take Greek words for their basic meaning here, it cannot be a recreation. Rather, it is destruction of the elements, and the Greek would support that. I'm going to let John MacArthur weigh in on this point. Here's what he has to say. He says, now let me talk about that for a moment from the scientific side so that you can see the rationality of this. Peter tells us that the elements will be dissolved. Now remember, the kingdom has ended 
and that is the end of time. We are now on the brink of eternity when there will be, according to chapter 21, verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no more sea. And then we enter into the eternal state. Time is no more. The thousand-year millennial kingdom is at the end of time. The elements will dissolve. He goes on, when God closes the book on time, the universe as we know it has to come to an end. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's go back to Peter's words, word elements. Peter uses a term in the Greek that means the basic units, the basic parts of matter. Elements refer to the basic components of creation. That's matter. And do you know what matter is? If you have a scientific background, you know this. Let me give it to you simply. Matter is particles in motion. Got that? Matter is particles in motion. Most of what you see is space. You know, this is space. Okay? What we think is solid object, he says, is space. It's hard to believe that. Even harder if you try to go through it. It looks solid, but it is not. Matter is particles in controlled motion. You learned that way back in your science classes somewhere. He goes on, listen carefully. Science says motion requires time because if something moves from one place to another, there has to be time. It's here and it's there, and the fact that it was here and there demands the passage of time, even if it's only a fraction. You cannot have matter unless you have time, because you can't have motion unless something can move from one point place to another, and it can't move from one place to another unless there's a passage of time. No time, no motion. No motion, no matter. No matter, no elements. No elements, no creation. Last paragraph, so when time ends, creation as we know it ends, and you cannot have in the universe anything made up of the particles in motion. So, when the Word of God says heaven and earth passed away, when the Word of God says the elements dissolve and the universe goes out of existence, it is because time ends. Time began at the same time creation began. When time ends, creation goes out of existence. So the creation, he says, is uncreated. And somewhere in timeless, spaceless presence, the great white throne appears. If that didn't solve it for you, I don't know what it. (laughs) If you want more information, see Heinz Lama. He's got a science major. Okay. Well, we come now to our next main point, taken out of verses 12 and 13. The accused being judged. The accused being judged. Let me read verses 12 and 13 again. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The accused being judged. They come from out of the sea. They come from out of the sea. First, we are told the masses before this great white throne are made up of the dead. They're made up of the dead. This is a reference to every unsaved person going all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we know at least one of the first ones that was utterly lost was Cain. First John tells us about Cain. That was one of the first sons of Adam and Eve. And he was evil, he was wicked, he slew his brother. And because, John says, he did that because he was evil. Evidently, by the time this thousand-year or millennial reign of Christ comes to an end, there are no unsaved people left alive. I said, time ends. All the unsaved have been slaughtered. They're now all dead. And every unsaved person from Cain, all through history and time, up to those who are in that millennium, are brought before this great white throne judgment. They're to be judged. This mass of dead people are said to be composed of the great and small. It's just not talking about your physical size. It's talking about your station in life. They might have been a king, a great president, a great leader, 
a great statesman, whatever, or they made just some common Joe Blow. But the thing is, every one of them, no matter what their station was in life, they are brought before this great white throne judgment. Multitudes died, though, and were buried in the sea. Some drowned in the sea instead of them on land. Well, that's no problem for God. After all, we find in Psalm 33, He spoke the entire universe into existence out of nothing. This is no problem for God. If He's going to create a new heaven and new earth, it's no problem for Him to take whatever elements He chooses of your body and bring it back to life. He will still create for them a resurrected body their soul will be reunited in. Number two, they come from out of death and Hades. Now understand, those two are often coupled together. Death is the doorway into Hades. That's why they put them together. When an unsaved person dies, he is separated from his physical body. But his soul, his spirit continues in a conscious state. There is no such thing taught in the Bible as soul sleep. When you die, you do not cease to be. There's three parts, your body, soul, and spirit. Well, you find that part, the immaterial, to continue on. And death is a door that leads you into this place called Hades. Now, we know a little bit about Hades. It's used about 11 times in the Bible. By the way, the Old Testament equivalent is Sheol. Sometimes referred to death or the grave. But it also is the same place as Hades here. It's described as a place Jesus did. It's divided into two parts with a great gulf fixed there. We know the one place is paradise. That's where back then the believers, the ones that were redeemed, that put their faith in God and in Christ, when they died, they went to that place called paradise. And there they were comforted. Remember, Lazarus was comforted in Abraham's bosom. It just means a place of comfort and joy and bliss. Then there was this huge gulf, and then there was the next part of Hades, and that was a place of terrible, terrible torment. Jesus talked about a rich man that was there, and he was in great agony and torment. He said, if just one drip on my finger could be put on my tongue, it would even, that would help even that much. It was a place of remembrance. And the horrible thing about this place, a couple things that are terrible about, is that before this sermon is through, Mass of the people throughout the world will enter into death and be cast right down into that place of torment. The amazing thing about it is they will think. They will think, no, you know when you die, that's it. What a surprise. They will think, I have made effort to live the type of life I think that God should accept. And what a surprise to find themselves in Hades. The other terrible thing about that place of torment is that doesn't end at all. There's even far deeper, worse dread. And I'm sure those in Hades understand that. They know at this point they've not met the judge on the great white throne judgment, but they know there will be a time when they're going to be taken out of Hades and they will stand before him. And what terrible, horrible, awful dread. And it cannot be reversed. My. I believe though that when Jesus ascended back up into heaven after he arose from the grave, having died on that cross, that he emptied paradise and took those souls into heaven with him. Without question, every unsaved person who dies is hit with the utter shock when he suddenly finds himself in Hades in this place of torment. As I said, nobody ever expected to end up there. And not only that, even there they have not met the Lord, as I said, and now they know they're going to have to. And now we find in our text, death and Hades is empty. Now they're called out of it. They're taken out of there. Physical death did not end at all. I think of that dear lady that was dying of that tumoring organ that took her life. You know, all I can say is I hope she was a redeemed person because what a shock. Robin Williams, what a shock. 
Life is so miserable here, and I'll tell you what, what's amazing to me, and this is where it's incomprehensible, you could think of the worst type of torment a person could be put through here upon the earth. It doesn't hold a candle to Hades, and after that, the lake of fire. You say, how do you know that? That's why God sent His Son out of heaven to keep you out of that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And the world goes on not caring, not believing. What a shock. What a terror awaits them. Remember, there is no rainbow over that throne. There is no mercy. There is no grace to be found. There's no second chance. It's over. No, it's just begun. Well, number three, they stand before the throne, verse 12. This entire scene is described in words that are so explicit and abrupt, brief. There's no long, drawn-out description of the setting or of the event that takes place. It's all brief. It's swift with a few words being used. They stand there because they are decisively convicted and abruptly sentenced. Elsewhere, this is called the resurrection of judgment, John 5.29. It's called the resurrection of disgrace and everlasting contempt, Daniel 12.2. It's called the resurrection of the wicked, Acts 24.15. But let me zero in on that word wicked. You know who God says is wicked? God says a person who is wicked is a sinner who refuses to acknowledge my love demonstrated in my son as their only provision and turns their back on my only son. I sent him out of heaven. I made him sin for you. I poured my wrath that you deserve on him. My perfect, beloved Son of God, I poured my wrath out upon Him. You want to know who is the wicked one? It is the one that turns His back on me and my Son. No matter what they've done, good or bad. That's the wicked person. Number four, they are all from the second resurrection. These are the ones that partake of the second resurrection. In verse 14, he says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. But before we get to that, they're out of the second resurrection. Look at verse 20, verse 5. Chapter 20, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. I have to say something about that lest you get confused. No saved person. No Old Testament believer, no New Testament believer, no tribulation saint or believer will be at this great white throne unless we're by the side of the judge as his bride. I want you to understand what a different, what a, what a huge difference. It is so huge. God says, when you put your faith in my son and him alone, I wipe away your sins, all of them past, present, future, no matter how horrible, because God says, they're all horrible. I wipe them all away. I cast them behind my back as far as the east is from the west. I bury them in the deepest sea. That's what He does with your sins when you come to Christ. But when you stand here, being of the second resurrection... You see, the first resurrection had to be of those that were going to go into the kingdom with him. They're going to reign with him throughout the eternal age of ages. But now we're talking about the second resurrection, which comes a thousand years later at this point. We just see here in Revelation 20, verse 11 and following. So they are of the second resurrection. We come now to the next main point, the proof of their guilt. I hope the Holy Spirit will help me to communicate this so you don't miss it. The proof, the proof of their guilt. We've read verses 12 and 13. Number one, examine is, examination is made of all their deeds, works recorded in God's books. This is God. Sovereign all-knowing God. Examination is made of all their deeds or works recorded in God's books. 
There are two main reasons for God's having these books of every person's deeds. Two main reasons. First is for proving each person's guilt. Second is for determining the intensity of one's eternal punishment. Keep those in mind. Their deeds will prove the guilt of every person who stands before this great white throne to be judged. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, there will be those who have deeds or works that show they have tried their best to keep God's law. Remember that? They thought they were in. They would go into the kingdom. They would never stand there. I mean, they gave their lives to seeking to please God, to live out God's righteous law or standards. But here's the problem. First, God tells us what His righteous standard is. Jesus said, here's the standard. You are to be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Hold it. He didn't say you are to try to be perfect. He said you are to be perfect. Not one sin. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote these words. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You want to work salvation? I don't. I don't. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law, these are the people who say, I'm going to try to please God. I'm going to try to keep His law. He says they are under a curse. For it is written in the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Yes, there will be masses upon masses of people who are at this great white throne judgment and they couldn't believe that they ended up in Hades. They could not believe that they ended up there because they thought if I try hard enough and do my very best, I'll make it. Surely I'll make it. God says, no, you won't. In fact, God Himself has declared of every person, every person that has ever lived, excluding His Son, for all, for all have what? Sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, God tells us that the one of His main purposes He had for giving us the law in Romans 3, 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world what? Will become guilty before Him. That's why one of the main reasons for the law, not only does it reveal the perfect character of God and His holy nature, and it's a guideline for us to get along in society, it's way beyond that. It's also His requirement, He says, to show that you are guilty. And these people will stand before Him as He opens those books up. And by the way, He, he records every single thought, every one of them, every word. Because he says that in Matthew, every will give account for every word. He says every deed or action, every motive. He says it's all right there before me. And these people will stand before this one awesome majesty on the throne and realize what? I am guilty. I am guilty. But also their works will determine the degree of their eternal punishment. It's interesting that he waits not... Just after you and I die, people die. But you see, your life continues on. Not your physical life, but the effect of your life. And it's all realms. So please understand when I use this illustration. It's all realms. But you have dedicated your life to teaching evolution. You've dedicated your life to teaching your students that there is no God. No 
absolute standards of right and wrong. You've dedicated yourself to just all evolution, and you think of the masses of people who are affected. God says, I weigh every bit of that out. All the effects of what you have taught, all that you've done and lived, I weigh it all out, and that determines how the intensity, if you please, of your eternal torment in this lake of fire. I'll tell you what. When I do my study for the message, and I get to this passage, I just say to God again, why me? Why would you lavish the mercy and grace upon me to completely forgive me and completely cleanse me and cause me to be born into your family? Why me when the masses of people go on their way and never get saved? For by grace have you been saved Through faith, and that what? Not of yourselves, but what? It is a gift of God. Not a result of works that anyone should boast. Yes, there will be literally masses and masses of people standing condemned before the great white throne because they thought that somehow they could keep God's law. They thought surely their whole life showed that if they had dedicated themselves to trying their very best to keep God's law, they would find acceptance and be granted entrance into heaven. What a shock to find themselves standing among the damned who will be thrown into the lake of fire. Every one of those unsaved persons will be found guilty based on the very best efforts and works to satisfy God's righteous demand of being as perfect as He is perfect. They were born in sin. And their life proved it. So we have the degree as well. It's interesting to note that the effect and impact of your life is going to have this eternal effect on one's intensity of judgment. Jesus put it this way in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready to act or act according to his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, Much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. You see, in America, there is no excuse. I mean, there are churches everywhere. There are Bibles. You can go to thrift stores and pick up a Bible. You can go now online with your your, uh, phones, iPhones, your computers, and, and find the Word of God. You can go on the radio and the television. I mean, it's everywhere. What will Americans say when they stand at this judgment seat of this great white throne judgment? And yet there are places where they have never, in countries where they have never heard the name of Jesus. Listen, they're going to be at this great white throne judgment as well. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire as well. The only hope for any person in the whole wide world is Jesus Christ. There's salvation in no other, he said, for there's none other name under heaven given whereby man must be saved. God said, I sent him out of heaven, my only beloved son, I sent him out of heaven to provide your way. I poured upon him your sins. I poured upon him your deserved wrath that you could be saved. There is no other salvation. And yet man goes on as if it's an insignificant, trivial thing. But there will be degrees of punishment. Those who have never heard the name of Jesus, they'll end up in the lake of fire. They're not given a second chance, dear ones. That's not taught anywhere in Scripture. And this is my authority, the written Word of God, His revelation to man. If you don't believe this, then you really are utterly lost. It's our only hope. Study how we got the Scriptures if you don't believe that. To find out you can rely upon what God has revealed to you in them. And so examination is made of all their deeds recorded in God's book to prove their guilt and to establish the intensity of their eternal torment. And number two, search is made for their name in God's book of life. Verse 15. Search is made for their name in God's book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You don't and you can't 
gain the necessary righteousness God requires of you by living a good life or by trying your very best to keep God's law. It isn't religion. It isn't religions. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to provide the way. God has already passed judgment upon you. He said there is none righteous, no, not one. He says all, take all your righteousness, there is filthy rags. Minstrel rags is literally the word. Isaiah 64. That's why he sent his only begotten son. He came because that was the only way you could receive total forgiveness and get the necessary righteousness God demands of you. When Jesus, the perfect Son of God, went to that cross, God made Him sin for you and me by placing all our sin upon Him, and then God judged His Son in your and my place. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But after God had seen His Son had borne our deserved wrath and punishment enough, and Jesus realized He had paid the price. Then that great cry, It is finished! That's a victory cry. And God said, I'll prove it to you. I'll raise him up on the third day. And he did. And then what is he, what is the message? He says, Go around the world and preach. There is salvation in no other. And he said, But whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Thank you, God. What a promise from God Himself. As I mentioned, God takes our sin. We'll never be at this great white throne judgment when you put your faith in Him. And by the way, we find, we discover that He wrote our name in the book of life. He really did it in eternity past, but only God could do that, couldn't He? What a joy to know that my name, and I trust your name, has been written in the Lamb's book of life. But all these people, from Cain down to the very last one at the end of the millennium, all those people standing there will find an awful blank. Here, it wasn't works. It wasn't religions. It was acknowledging what God says. You're a sinner, and before me, holy, perfect God, you are condemned, and I have come to deliver you out of that condemnation and give you eternal life. What an incredible... And I give it as a free gift, because you could never buy it. You could never earn it. I give it as a free gift. By you simply putting your faith in my Son, and here they'll find an awful, awful blank. So the person who repents of his sins and opens his heart and receives Jesus Christ as God's Son, as his Savior, trusting him and him only for his eternal salvation, will find his name already written in God's book of life. But not one of these resurrected dead standing before this great white throne will have their names written there in that book. For salvation is not of works not of one's best attempt to keep God's law. Salvation can only be received as a gift from God by receiving His Son as one's personal Savior and Lord and God because only Jesus could provide it. And He offers it as a free gift to anyone who will receive Him. That brings us to the final part, the sentence pronounced and carried out upon the condemned. The sentence pronounced and carried out upon the condemned. Let me read verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Number one, their sentence was immediately executed. No time was wasted, no arguments, no appeals. No delays. There's absolutely no grace to be found. No mercy to be seen in the eyes of the one on this throne. I think about the fact that when Satan fell, Lucifer fell, multitudes of angels fell with him. Not once did God provide any means for them to be saved, to reverse it. In fact, Jesus said God prepared created hell 
for the devil and his angels. His design was not for man. He created for the devil and his angels. And yet God mercifully provided for you and me. Number two, they were thrown into the lake of fire. They were thrown into... Perhaps it will be righteous angels that take each guilty person when the sun passes sentence upon them and throws them into this lake of fire. I don't know what kind of body God gives them, but it's a body that matches because they're resurrected and they are united with this body that He gives them to uh, endure and experience rather the intensities of hell. Our Lord describes this lake of fire known as hell as being like Gehenna. Now, he used, as you know, object lessons. So when he was here, outside southwest, I believe it was Jerusalem, down that valley of Ben-Hinnom, was the garbage dump. And that's where they threw all their garbage. They threw it. That's like this word you're thrown in the lake of fire. Also, criminals, because nobody was around to bury them, they were thrown in there. And so there was a burning and a smoldering going on all the time. A stench. Maggots involved with it as well. And he describes this lake of fire similar to that. By the way, Israel in the Old Testament would sacrifice their children down there. And that's why it could never be a sacred place. And so they made it the garbage dump. Of course, God judged them for that, sacrificing their children. Jesus told us hell or the lake of fire is a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's beyond Hades. It'll be weeping and gnashing. It isn't just darkness. It's black darkness. Remember when God poured out that fifth vile judgment on the Antichrist kingdom? They gnawed their tongues for pain because of the blackness, the darkness. It'll be that. In Isaiah 66, verse 24, Mark 9, 48, we are told it is a place where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. It doesn't end. It's not annihilation. You know, somehow we feel we've got to get God out of a problem here. And so, well, no, we think maybe, and even theologians come uh, come to the argument here. No, it's annihilation. No, it's not. You're dealing with the eternal Son of God who came here and became sin for us and bore God's wrath. Listen, you turn your back on Him, God said, this is not annihilation. While those who place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing Him as their Lord and Savior, believing in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they're experiencing the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. They're enjoying the wonderful presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the incredible blessings that eye has not seen or ear heard that He has prepared for them. These folk are in that terrible place of utter ongoing torment, eternal torment in hell in the lake of fire. Number three, they're experiencing the second death. There is physical death. We understand what that is. There is spiritual death. And you might be here today and you might be spiritually dead. Physically alive. But your spirit is dead. There's no real connection of fellowship with the one true God. You're not alive in Him having spiritual life, and so you're spiritual dead. And now we come to this third one, and that is the second death. And it's described here as being cast into the live, into the lake of fire, being forever separated from God's presence, never receiving any of His grace or mercy, only eternal punishment. And his point here, you have become despicable in His sight, cast into this place. How do we know, though, that it's eternal punishment, not annihilation? How do we know that? Well, take the text for what it says. Look at Revelation 20.10. And the devil was, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the false prophet are also. And what? They will be tormented day and night. And what does it say? Forever and ever. Eon to the eons. Well, what does that mean? Well, in chapter 4, verse 9, we saw that God is described as the one who lives, what? Forever and ever. Same words. You know John three sixteen. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have 
Everlasting life. That's that eon word as well. Everlasting life. So if this is not forever and ever, God is not forever and ever, and your eternal life is not forever and ever. Do you understand that? Let the words of Scripture speak as they are on Scripture. This is not annihilation. This is forever. But people choose to reject this clear teaching of God's Word because Satan uses their pride and blinds them to the real character of God. They don't want to acknowledge that they are sinners deserving hell. They don't want a God who declares that the only way they can receive forgiveness is through His Son who came into this world and went to the cross to pay for the sins. They want God to be a tolerant God. They want Him to be a loving God. They want Him to be one who would accept them no matter what and all their efforts. They want all roads to lead to heaven. They choose to believe there is no hell, there is no lake of fire. There will be no great white throne where every person who is rejected or neglected, God's only offer salvation in and only in His Son, will stand and will be judged and thrown into this lake of fire well they're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever they choose to reject such a God they choose not to accept his demands they refuse to believe he has fixed a day in which he will judge all mankind by the one he raised from the dead affirming this day, this event is going to take place I said to you this is the hardest scripture in all your Bible Not hard to understand what he's saying, but hard to comprehend. God, His righteousness, His love, eternal torment, a place where there's absolutely no more mercy, no more grace, and to realize that the vast sea of humanity will find themselves there standing before this great white throne. As I said to you, when you come this far in the book of Revelation, I hope like me you just say, Oh God, I thank you with all of my heart that you showed and extended mercy to me. I thank you that you had people that you put in my life causing to run across my path or my path to run across theirs to open my eyes and heart to who you are and that this is your son and that he did this for me and there is no other way that I could be forgiven, that I could have eternal life, that I could be born into your family, that I could be assured of going to heaven. There's no other way. I hope that your heart is saying, Oh God, who am I that you stepped in and saved me? Now you compare in the sense of the myriads upon myriads of people that you're around day in and day out. School, work, where you live, the nation, the world that are on their way to standing before this great white throne judgment, and you have to say, Oh God, who am I? I humbly thank you. You know, I can't even, I'm sorry, I can't even comprehend because I've been saved since about six or seven years of age of standing on the other side being in that crowd. I can't comprehend it. With what I know from the Scriptures, is going to be their fate. I mean, forever and ever and ever. Because they didn't know holy God or His only provision and why that was the only way that you and I could ever be saved. But isn't this a tremendous passage for worldwide missions? That no matter what price you have to pay, God, help us to destroy our pride and humbly tell a lost people how to come to saving faith. To tell them the message, whether they want to hear it or not. The sad part about all that is, even that will be something they'll remember throughout the eternal age of ages as they suffer if they turn Him down. And yet, God has sent us to tell them. Thank you, Lord, that somebody came and told you and told me. I mean, we have no business being saved. We have absolutely no business. How how come us? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, 
without question, this is the hardest passage in the whole Bible. You fix that day when time will be no more and eternity will begin. And every single person, every single one of them, from Cain to the very last person who will have been, will have died, they will have died without receiving the gift of salvation in your son. Death and Hades and even the sea will be emptied. And they will stand before this great white throne judgment. That Lord, first of all, thank you for the written word of God. All kinds of books out there, even religious books. But this is the true written word of God. Anybody who reads and studies this, yes, does not my heart burn declaring this is truth. No other book reveals a perfect righteous God that is full of love and mercy and compassion and yet is absolutely just and must deal with us in accord to your perfection and offers us only in your son for there could be no other way it could be provided his righteousness his life total forgiveness reconciliation to you. I know that each one of us here, and we can't even say it, we just do it with an imperfect heart. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for saving us. But are there others here today that have heard these words? Satan has probably done his level best to blind them from what has been said and the truth of Scripture here, but they've heard these words. Oh God, you said now is the acceptable time. Now, right now is the day of salvation. May you call them. May you take the blindness away. May they know the joy of salvation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.